Kevin? Some of you are probably thinking that is a long, complicated piece of writing. And if David's going to teach on it in his usual style, we're going to be here for hours and hours. And there's a game at 6 o'clock, so we have to be out of here before that. Here's the good news. Amen. <laughs> Here's the good news. Paul himself saved us the trouble because he gave us the cliff note version of this chapter right in his own summary. He said very clearly, Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. Great summation of what he just said. And when you add his qualifiers from verse 3 and 12... One who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. Seek to abound for the edification of the church. We really start to grasp what he's saying. And if we remember the overriding theme of this entire essay, pursue love, we've just covered it. Perfect. Amen? Amen. Let's go to communion. Kids. Wouldn't that be awesome? And Dave's like, yes, sometime. Do a one-minute sermon. Seriously, though. Paul does make quite clear the point of this particular, or these particular homilies. It's actually three homilies together here in chapter 14. And when you read this in context of the entire essay and of the letter itself, I'm rather amazed at the vast amounts of confusion and division and discord and debate that this chapter causes. Now, I don't want to address all the noise around this chapter this morning. We, we, a, we don't have time for it, and I don't think it's necessary, but... I think it's important to point out a few things for a couple of reasons. One, I'm sure some of us ourselves have been affected by this chapter and have questions and concerns about some of the things that Paul's trying to get at in this chapter. But more importantly, I want to point out a few things because the main theme of these three homilies lends itself to such important application in our own lives individually and as a church community. So I think it's important we engage it. But before we dive in, let's remind ourselves where we are at in this exploration of this incredible letter of Corinthians. This is actually the 57th teaching we've done in the book of Corinthians. We started back in May of 2012. We started looking at Corinthians in 2012. But we haven't been in it since October. So I think it's important just, I'm going to take two minutes, do a brief reminder of where we are at. And remember, this outline that I use come from Bailey's exceptional work on Paul's writings. The letter to 1 Corinthians is made up of five essays. The Cross and Christian Unity, which we looked at back in 2012. Men and Women in the Human Family, 2013. Freedom and Responsibility was last year, as well as most of Men and Women in Worship, which we're going to finish up today. We're going to, we're going to finish up this fourth essay, and then we'll start in on the, the fifth essay, The Resurrection. And we have seen, if you remember, from last year, looking at this fourth essay, Men and Women in Worship, which runs from chapter 11 to the end of 14, it's an incredible composition, in which Paul gives seven homilies in a ring composition form. It's really one of the most brilliant, brilliant pieces of, of, of writing that I've ever come across. And so his first homily, Men and Women Leading in Worship, How They Dress, is going to be balanced out with this men and women worshiping, no chatting in church. Then his second essay, which we've looked at, Order and Worship, Sacrament, the Lord's Supper, will be balanced out by Order and Worship, Word, Prophets and Speakers in Tongues. That third essay, Gifts and Nature of the Body, which we've already looked at, will be balanced out by this homily here, Gifts and the Building Up of the Body. And then right in the middle was that in just spectacular hymn to love, which we spent many weeks on last year. Love is patient, love is kind, etc. It's really remarkable. And, and 
And remember, you know, for Paul, whenever he sets up this sort of ring composition, as we've seen through the years, that the point he's trying to make is right in the middle. And, and that hymn to love was just magnificent. And that's really the climax of this whole essay. So now as he comes down, we're going to be looking at these, these last three. We're going to be looking at these last three homilies today, which make up all of, of, of chapter 14, gifts in the building up of the body. So he's coming down, and, and he's going to be finishing up what he started to say earlier in this essay, and that's important to remember. And that can take away some of this confusion that this chapter causes. Because remember, it is important. Do not read individual lines of Scripture out of context. Don't do it. Don't do it. So, let's dive into this chapter a little and see how the deeper truths can be applied to us today. So, remember, from the beginning of this essay, in fact, throughout this entire book, Paul is trying to correct abuses within the Corinthian church. Remember that. That is vital to understand what's going on in this letter to the Corinthians. As Witherington points out, Paul's words must be read in that context. The major purpose of chapter 14, indeed of the whole letter, is correction, not just instruction. This chapter should not be seen as a how-to man. And I think that is very helpful because that is what mostly has caused the problems with chapter 14. It is often read independently of context, as no, it, no one ever attaches it to the, to the rest of the essay. And, and it's almost read as a how-to manual. And so it sort of leads us astray, and, and, and we're led to think Paul is laying down universal guidelines, or even church doctrines. When in fact what he's really trying to do is just correct some abuses in Corinth and, and, and maybe help us in our own time and culture with different things that we could be doing. And, and this is going to be especially evident in verse 34 and 35 on women, which, which has often been used in a very interesting way. So we'll get there in a second. So the backstory for, for, for these homilies, and, and, and we've, we've already seen this in other homilies within the letter, the Corinthians worship gatherings leave a little bit to be desired, right? And that's probably putting it kindly. So we've already seen when we talked about how they were celebrating the Lord's Supper, that was an absolute nightmare. The rich were eating everything, the poor were eating nothing. It was atrocious what they were doing in the, in the name of, of Christ. And Paul had to address that. Now he's going to address abuses in their worship gatherings. So what seems to have been happening, what the backstory here seems to be, is that everyone's talking at the same time. Everyone's showing off their spiritual gifts, their gifts of prophecy, their, and especially their gifts of tongues. If you read the book of Corinthians closely, it's clear the Corinthians love this gift of tongues. They loved it. Remember, we've seen already that some of these Corinthians had a bad theology on end times. And they thought they were speaking like angels. They must be angels. They've already arrived, right? So they love this gift of tongues. And some of them were probably even using the gift to get to an ecstatic or trance-like state. And no one was listening to anyone. Now, I want to make a side note. Remember, this is understandable that this would be going on in Corinth. Because Christianity was a new religion at this time. And these people who were converting to this new religion had not been living in a vacuum their whole lives. They brought with them their history, their traditions, their experiences. Some, no doubt, were bringing with them the form of other religious meetings that they had been part of. 
maybe from the cult of Sybil, where trances and ecstatic states were normal. And they're bringing it into here, and Paul is saying, no, 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 this isn't what we do here. Remember, throughout this letter, he's been saying, hey, you guys in Corinth, you look a lot more like Corinthians than you look like Christians. And that has to change. Because if you're going to call yourself Christians, we need to live and look like Jesus Christ. So that's the backstory. All right? So Paul in this homily is basically saying, first he's to the speakers in tongues. Hey, you guys, speakers in tongues. Your gift of tongues is, is fine. It's a great gift to have. Paul says, I, he, he even had it. But here's the thing. When you're gathered together, if no one's going to interpret them, what, what's the point? How do they help anyone? Keep them to yourself if there's no interpretation, Paul says. Oh, and by the way, even if there is interpretation, let's do it in an orderly way. Someone speaks in tongues, and someone interprets, someone speaks in tongues. And, and, and let's just do two or three at a time. I mean, over the course of the meeting. All right, simple. Fine. So then Paul goes on, and he says to the prophets, Listen, the prophecy is fine. That's the point, to give word. Oh, and by the way, prophecy doesn't actually mean foretelling the future. It can just be receiving these divine words to give to someone for encouragement, for to strengthen each other, to comfort each other through prophetic words. But again, Paul says, what good if it, is it if everyone's doing it at the same time? What, what good is that? And, and if, if this person over here is receiving a prophetic word, and then you're not even waiting to see if someone else receives a prophetic word to balance that out, to make sure it's a good prophetic word or not, what's the point? Why would we do that? He's saying, so let's not do that. We need intelligibility, and we need order. And that can also help us understand these verses to the world. Paul has said to the speakers in tongues in Corinth, both men and women, remember chapter 11. He said, listen, do it orderly or shut up. So then he says to the prophets, both men and women, remember chapter 11. Do it orderly or shut up. Well, there is obviously a group of women in Corinth who don't know when to shut up. And Paul says, be quiet. These are corrective statements that he has been making through the entire chapter, and they need to be understood that way. So it's not unlike every now and then here at Cana, I remind people, listen, if you're coming late, that's fine, but if the opening video is already on, it, it's not the time to come in and, hey, how's it going, and, blah, and talk over that opening video. Even if you're not interested, the person beside you might be interested. Do it orderly. Or in communion. You know it takes a while for everyone to get through the communion. After you're done with communion, I remind people just to stay in that, that thankful, prayerful state until everyone's done. Do it orderly. These are corrective statements, and they should be understood that way. But on a side note, I want to mention a couple other things about these verses. Because I don't want to appear flippant over this issue. I understand for some people this is a very big issue. And many of us have our own beliefs on this whole gender issue. Obviously, a lot of us that come to Cana have come to terms with our beliefs because Cana is not gender biased. However, I think it's good to know why. 
why for ourselves. It's good to know why when we're talking to others that want to know, well, how can you believe that when it says right here very clearly? So I think it's important. Let me, let me talk about it a bit. However, I am not getting into a, 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 I'm not getting into a deep discussion on it. I have taught on why I believe churches should be genderless before. So if you want a bigger teaching on it, that's like four sermons. Just get in touch with me. We can go out and chat about it. But I want to make a couple of observations in line with this context of why I believe that's what's happening here. It makes sense in this time and culture in Corinth that there would be a group of women chatting out of order in the meetings. Okay? A, A, I'm going to let Witherington explain one reason why that's easy to believe. It is very believable that these women assume that Christian prophets or prophetesses function much like the oracle at Delphi, who only prophesied in response to questions, including questions about purely personal things. So remember what I just said about these people coming in to a new religion, bringing their own history with them. They were used to being at certain religious meetings where the oracle would only answer questions. So there they are in this meeting, and there's people prophesying over there, and they're like, oh, that's the oracle. Start asking them questions, and really personal questions. So just imagine that. How awkward and how out of place that would be, and they start throwing out these personal questions, and, and Paul's like, no, no, that's not what we do. No. Another reason may also be that these women are very new to the faith. And so they're asking these questions that they're just constantly asking questions that can be easily answered at another time and place. Any of us who have kids know what this is like. First time you ever brought your kid to a movie? Right? They think you're still at home sitting on the couch and they just start out loud asking you questions. Like, no, no, no. We're in a movie theater. You can't do that. Quiet. We'll talk later. I have a daughter who loves to. Oh my gosh. She does it now to irritate me because she doesn't need to do it anymore, but she just does it to irritate me. But from the time she was young, I like to listen to NPR when I'm driving and I'll be in this this great interview and great question gets asked. And just as they're about to answer, Isabel's like, Dad! So what's going on there? And what about this? I'm like, no, Isabella, no! No, I just missed what they said. Save your questions, Isabella. This radio is four minutes long. And another reason I think this is perfectly acceptable to understand these verses this way, as a correction to a group of women, is Bailey does an exceptional job in his study of pointing out that it's possible there is a language issue at play here where, for whatever reason in that culture, there would have been women who would not have been familiar with the more formal Greek that would have been being spoken and used in these meetings. And so they'd be constantly asking the person beside them, what are they talking about? What are they saying? What does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? And Paul says, hey, whoa, we're doing things orderly and intelligibly. We're not all talking about this. Just like he had to tell the speakers in tongues, men and women, the prophets, men and women, now he's telling this particular group that seems to be a big distraction, Corinth, whoa, you need to knock it off. But here's an overriding thing. If none of that convinces you, and by the way, you don't need to be convinced. We, we can all hold our own ideas on, on, on gender in the church. But if that doesn't convince you, this essay started in chapter 11. And in chapter 11, it is perfectly clear that men and women both are in leadership roles in the church. So why is Paul suddenly changing? Why would he suddenly change his mind? 
Now, some scholars, because they don't want to dive into all of that stuff I just shared with you, and by the way, I just broke down books and books and books and books of, of, of stuff on that. What some scholars do, because they like to take the easy way out, is they like to say this is a redaction that was added years later. And then they have a whole argument for that. I don't know, I'm pretty fine with, Paul's already been addressing men and women, what, so there's, there's a backstory there that we don't know. But whatever you need to do, you need to do. Here's the bigger question anyway. Why is Paul making these corrections? Why is Paul making these corrections? I'm not sure why I have that slide. Why the push for order and intelligibility? Well, the first reason is because God is a God of order. That's why. We are called to be like Christ. Disorder is not consistent with that calling. So this is one part of what we talked about last week. He must increase, but I must decrease. Christ increasing in us, and we decreasing. Order, not chaos. Christ-likeness, not self-aggrandizement. And further, and most importantly for us today, Paul is helping us understand better, in chapter 14, the purpose of church the purpose of community, the purpose of worship. Witherington writes this, Worship is mainly meant to be a group experience, where one gives worship to God and koinonia to others. Now, Fee goes even further when he writes, The point of everything in corporate worship is not personal experience in the spirit, but building up the church itself. It is for edification, the true expression of love for the saints. Paul himself used that word edification throughout chapter 14. I'm sure you heard it when Kevin was reading. When we gather, we are to build each other up. We're to build each other up. In fact, the simple act of gathering together in an orderly way builds each other up. Just committing to the effort of gathering is an act of love for each other. An important act of love for each other. And I've been talking about this for six years here at Cana. I say it a lot. Come to church for each other. And I think this is so important here in 2015. Because church, community, any relationship, can often become a place for individualized religion and self-absorption. A place where we are primarily consumers. A hundred different souls working out our relationship with God but not even caring about our relationship with each other. Now, let me be clear, and this is very, very, very important to hear, please. We all go through times in our lives of deep, deep struggle and pain and suffering. And in those times, we need to be consumers of church. We need to just come and sit and, and be allowed to work out our relationship to find comfort and hope and salvation. And I get that. 
And I believe and pray that Cana has been and always will be a place where you can come when you just need to consume and receive. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Any church can only offer that environment when, we, when the majority are committed to making it that kind of place. Where we commit to gathering together, commit to helping each other, commit to putting the other's needs ahead of our own. Because when someone, let's say, wakes up on a Sunday morning and says, wow, I really need church today. And they come. And the majority of us, because we didn't need it today, aren't there. I guess we're not that kind of place that's there for that person that needs it. Think about the last time you didn't come to church. Not for work purposes or illness or this or that, but just, I don't need that today. Maybe you didn't. But maybe your neighbor did. Maybe the person you're in community did. Decided they, they didn't need this. We, we just would have been here this morning singing Papa which if I was loud enough would have been really bad. <coughs> Relationship is a give and take. Church's relationship. So many relationships in, in, in our world go away for one simple reason. I hear it all the time. There are relationships that end for very legitimate reasons, but I hear from a lot of people whose relationships end, and if you listen closely, it's quite simple. I, I wasn't getting anything out of it anymore. Oh, okay. Pretty sure that's not what a relationship is. If that was the case, my wife would have left me years ago. You know, a lot of people look at our marriage because we've been together for over 20 years and think, oh, you guys got this great marriage. No, we don't. I'm the worst husband in the world. <laughs> but, and, uh, and I am, that's the worst part, right? <laughs> but relationship isn't just about what she can get out of it. So she stays with me. We create a church environment for people to come and find comfort and healing when we're committed to that and to each other. It's about what I talked about last week, our theme. Christ must increase, we must decrease. Bailey writes it this way. Worshippers do not attend to be entertained. They are participants in a great unfolding drama. I love that. 
I love church as a great unfolding drama. You know why it's a good way to think of church? Because it reminds us we are church. Church is not just somewhere we go. It's not just somewhere we receive. It's something we do. It's something we give. It's something we participate in at very deep and tangible levels. It's a living body made up of different yet equally vital parts that need to live into that responsibility to give and share and encourage and comfort and build up, is what Paul said in this um, chapter 12. I love that he used the imagery of body 2,000 years ago to talk about church. I love that. Because, you know, we have all these pieces of our body, some that seem so insignificant. <coughs> like you never, ever, well, at least I don't, think about the three middle toes, right? Whoever thinks about them, break one. Break one, and you'll think about it. It's a beautiful concept. When one of us aren't being part of the body, and see, 2,000 years ago, he couldn't have did this because scientists didn't know yet, but we know now all about this grotesque evil disease called cancer. Ask a doctor at its most basic, 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 simplest definition of cancer is just a cell in the body that decides it's no longer living for the rest of the body. That's all cancer is. And when it gets enough cells to go along with it, the body dies. It's a great metaphor, Paul. Church is something we do, something we are, something we commit to. I was talking about our move coming up with someone, in, and they said, Well, I think it's maybe a good thing because. Sorry, I was just had a note on a new slide, and I was trying to figure out what that slide is. I got it. And they say, I think it's a good thing because, in some ways, it's God saying to Cain, you've got to grow up now. I like that. Not that we haven't been growing, I think we are, but so far, the difference between like being older and younger is when you're younger, you just allow life to happen, right? Because <laughs> it's happening. You have no idea if your parents can afford, afford food or not. You just go to the table when you're younger. And all these other things, you just let life happen. And all of a sudden you become parent, you're like, oh my gosh, I've got to make it happen. I have to make life happen. <laughs> and I love that about church. I think it's good for us now. We're going to be moving out. We've got to make this happen. Can't just, can't just, David, I don't mean to sing you out, because I'm, I'm not trying to make you say anything, Bronson, but the fact is, we, we can't just keep allowing just David to do this. We've got to help him do it. We've got to help each other. Christopher Smith and John Patterson, I know I've gone long to you, but don't worry, I'm almost done. You're going to get to the game. <laughs> Christopher Smith and John Patterson really capture, I think, this whole idea beautifully in their book called Slow Church. And I want to end by quoting them. Now, it's a bit of a long quote, but I think it's essential in helping us to understand both Paul's teaching and also our own roles in the life of Canaan Community Church. 
William Kavanaugh has observed in a superb little book, Being Consumed, Economics and Christian Desire, <coughs> that although we take the bread and the cup of the Eucharist into our bodies, it is we who are being consumed by it. We are absorbed into the interconnected life of God's creation. Just as Christ becomes food for us, we give ourselves away and become food for others. We see that there is no room for us to be mere consumers, people who take without giving, and that even our things must be evaluated in light of how they bind us together with God and humanity. We are not to cling to our things, but to use them for the sake of the common good. A sacramental view sees things only as signs whose meaning is only completely fulfilled if they promote the common, the good of communion with God and with other people. Our desires are transformed as we submit ourselves to the Eucharistic life of Christ. Additionally, as Kavanaugh says, and I love this, the most important factor we should consider in making the choices that shape our lives is not, will it cause us pain and suffering? but rather will it move us in the direction of the common good. Just imagine what our own individual lives would look like, what our communities would look like, if before we did something, we asked, not, will this affect me, but instead we asked, will this move us in the direction of the common good? St. Paul said something like that, didn't he? Seek not your own good, but the good of the other. I think this year, if we allow Christ to increase in us, and ourselves to decrease, we're all going to get better and better, not just at asking that question, but living into it as well. Living to strengthen, to encourage, and comfort each other, living for the good of the other, living committed to community, living love. My God help us all.